support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Chris Carl Photography Podcast. With before we get to landscapes and cameras and all kinds of craziness, how did you find photography for the first time? Oh, well, for the first time, um, you know, pretty much I grew up in a mountain town, uh, Estes Park, Colorado, um, went to high school and stuff there. And really, um, I mean, I liked being outdoors. I enjoyed the place, but I don't think I really appreciated it too much until I left there. And I moved to Phoenix, a giant city of 5 million people. And from there, I just got out into the desert as much as I could. And I, my Dad sent me some like crummy one megapixel camera. I was like 18 at the time. He sent me some awful digital camera and I went out into the desert and took awful photos with it and didn't know what I was doing, but I realized I quickly liked it. So that was the beginning of it for me. Um, from there, it evolved quite a bit, obviously going from 35 millimeter film, mostly because I just wanted a, a cheap camera that had more of the features and I couldn't afford a real digital camera. And then from there I got hooked on slides, uh, film in general. And when I wanted to go bigger, I wanted to make bigger prints. I just went straight to four by five. And in terms of genres, I mean, it feels like a lot of people, when they pick up a camera, it feels like they kind of pick a genre very early and, and tend to stick with it from then on out. Was it a, a dislike of photographing people? Cause I know a lot of people do tend to go down the portrait route. Oh yeah. People are terrifying. So yeah, I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, uh, I think part of it then growing up in the mountains, I mean, the landscape spoke to me, even though I didn't really know it when I lived there. So being out in the desert and then I moved to Eastern us, so I was in these forests, you know, Virginia mountains and forests there. And just really, I wanted to be out there and record it in some way. So landscapes became the main focus really from the get go. I mean, landscape photography, something that has always seemed to escape me in the sense of getting the feel for it, getting the understanding of it. If I'm not photographing a person, I tend to start to flap a little bit. In terms of landscape photography as well, it feels like it's the, the, the most non-photographic form of photography in terms of skill set. Not that it's a bad thing when it comes to your phot photographic skills, but you have to have so much extra stuff going for you. You have to understand like weather, you have to understand climate, you have to be I am assuming in good shape to be able to hike to all these amazing locations. It's, it feels like there's more intangible skills involved with landscape photography than any other type of photography. That's really interesting. Some people would almost say, and it's, it's very true because there's all of these skills, I guess, more about nature than about photography. Where some, I've, I've heard somebody like the argument that landscape photography is almost the easiest because all you have to do is be somewhere pretty and take a photo and, you know, that nature does it for you kind of thing. But it's, you know, what you point out is that that's kind of not true. You know, you just go somewhere pretty and it's looks like crap out because the conditions are no, you know, not good at all. You're not going to get any good photos. So if you don't really kind of have that drive to go further, learn about when the good light happens and then just spend a lot of time dealing with crummy light until you get good stuff. That's uh, that's part of it. So, if, you know, for me, I feel like a portraits are where there's, more involved to where I have to control this other person. And that to me, it's easier to control the landscape, even though it's a rigid rock. Does the lack of feedback from a subject ever cause you an issue in the sense like one thing I found with traveling in America is that so many vistas are just so broad and so wide and there's so much there that I almost get overwhelmed with picking something out from the scene. Right. If you're looking at a lot of the Western US is just empty space. I mean, it's a lot of everything. And then there's areas that are too chaotic. So I guess as a landscape photographer, you learn to figure out what makes an image, what makes a scene. So 
this kind of comes naturally at some point. One thing I've noticed with, I mean, just to, just to swipe through your Instagram, like a complete hipster, it's really obvious that color is just such an amazing feature of your work. It's, is it like, do you see color as being a main compositional component or are you someone that goes out, you start off with light or do you start off with location and wait for the light? What's your process? I've become pretty strong about color. Uh, definitely. I would say yeah, I tried black and white a bit and I used to dabble in a bit more and make dark, darkroom prints with it. I just found color became my thing of several years ago. I stopped even carrying black and white film with me. And I am, I'm always looking, the subject is probably most important. So some sort of composition, but color is part of the composition. So I'm looking at how they interact with each other, but overall there's kind of this subject and a composition that might be the shapes within the scene. And then color is the bonus. They play together. I'm looking for color combinations. It's certainly there. I mean, what are you doing in terms of scouting? If you're looking for these locations, it's got to be difficult in the sense that if you go by looking at other people's work, you're going to end up reproducing other right. people's work, which, which I've heard is a common complaint with landscape photographers is almost trying to hide other people's work from themselves so that they go in with a fresh set of eyes. You know, what's your process for scouting? Yeah. See, I used to, you know, anything you can find on Google, you've always always been photographed. If you see it on Instagram, that's because you're seeing a photograph of it. So you are going to, you know, if you go say top places to photograph in Colorado, you're going to find maroon bells and you're going to see 500,000 photos of maroon bells. And, you know, there's not much variance to those photos aside from the weather conditions. You know, you point the camera at the mountains and you, you know, whatever your weather you had there, you take a photo. So that's why when I start to, you know, scatter a new place, Certainly I see images. I, maybe I see something online or Instagram or wherever. And you're like, wow, that kind of looks like an interesting region. So anymore, now that I have the time, I mean, I used to be taking, you know, weekend trips or just a week long trip, but this is what I do now. So I have the freedom to take longer trips. I can be out there for a while. I don't feel this urge to take a ton of productive images in a short period of time. So I actually, my, my location research has gotten lousy. It's gotten really lackluster in some <laughs> ways. I just kind of, I kind of know a region I want to go to. And then I kind of stop looking at images. I just go there and then my boots need to get on the ground and I need to wander around and see it with my own eyes. Cause I don't know if I want these other ideas kind of getting in my head like you said, you know, you get other, you'll, you'll end up with someone else's composition or image in your head. So I kind of just want to see it for myself. Well, I have a really pathetic version of that, which is essentially because I shoot about 60 to 70 weddings a year when the world isn't ending from uh, a pandemic. I (laughs) do my absolute best to not look at venues like websites or not look at previous photographers that are photographed in the same places that I'm going to end up at. Because then you end up with the mindset of like, well, they did this, they did this, they did this. And you get, it's hard to get an idea out of your head, right? Yeah, that kind of makes sense because otherwise you will end up just doing what they did because you saw someone went to this tree in the back of a venue or whatever and took this photo. Yeah. So you're doing it, you're kind of doing it the same way. You're, you're not allowing your mind to be, I guess, poisoned by someone else's ideas. Not that that's the worst thing, but you're not allowing that in there. I mean, you just said that this is what you do. So mm-hmm. what, you know, I don't want to make this too much of an existential crisis of a question, but what, for you, what is the purpose of your photography? Oh, wow. That was a big question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the purpose, it, it really is, it became about sharing my view with the world, really, I guess, not to sound too self-serving, but it was images I like taking and I really enjoy doing it. So it's subject matter and locations and things that connect with me. And hopefully they also work for other people too, but that's kind of the secondary goal. And is it, I'm I'm assuming by it's what I do, it's your main money-making sort of tool at this point. Yeah, it's been for a little over five years now, yeah. 
you feel like that spoiled the process at all for you? No, that's the great thing about uh, landscape photography is like, I didn't change my priorities. I didn't like, I don't, don't head out to some place and feel like I better make a money making shot here. I I have no desire, nothing like that. So it still is 100%. I create the images I want to make and then worry about selling them after the fact. So I don't even like consider um, the photography side of things to be billable hours, if you will, where, you know, with the portraits, you're, you know, you're dealing with a client for the most part who is paying you. So with a landscape, I'm not expecting any sort of compensation from the landscape. That's all for me. I've been doing this podcast for a little bit now. Uh, this is episode 114. And I'm, I'm slowly learning that because I have quite a pessimistic outlook on life, I'm having to do a lot of these interviews in the way that you would do uh, an evaluation of a staff member at work where you say something good and you go to the negative and then you say something good. So I've found a way to kind of cram my, uh, my negative side of what I do into the middle so that people can be left with at least a good taste in their mouth when the whole thing's over. So if you don't mind me taking a little bit of a walk down the negative side here, something that's become a big issue, I think, as a result of social media and the sort of the ability to count the uh, likes of your work and so on is that people start like chasing or they start chasing attention and so on. And I think that's had a pretty profound effect, especially on portrait photography. We've seen sort of portraits become incredibly uh, how can I be incredibly nice about this? The retouching on portrait photography is becoming shambolic. And in a lot of cases, it's turning into almost cartoony graphic design levels of, of editing just to sort of chase more and more likes. And, you know, everything gets kind of escalated to a ridiculous extent. And one thing I've noticed with landscape photography is that the sort of hypersaturation, the um, including most likely terrible fake lens flares, and some of the tropes that have come along with landscape photography becoming part of this social media revolution of stupid. Um, are there any cliches within landscape photography that particularly bug you? I mean, I try not to let them bug me. You just kind of see it. I mean, the whole, the tent on the edge of a cliff that, you know, clearly is not a place <laughs> where you put a tent. Um, and that's frustrating from uh, an outdoor person's point of view too, because we really try to take care of nature and pitching tents in places where tents don't belong or where it's illegal to pitch a tent. And if you have a hundred thousand followers and you're, you know, pitching your tent in some illegal camping area, even if you didn't spend the night there, you're giving people the impression that you did. We're not seeing too much. That one has slowed down, thankfully. Um, but I've actually seen, I mean, you know, I've seen people in the landscape holding a, a lighter in front of their lens. And I, you know, I was with a friend and I'm like, what is he doing? He's like, Oh yeah, you get that lens glow flare with that. I'm like, Oh my, <laughs> you know, just, the fake lens flare and stuff <laughs> added with a lighter. And um, oh so, yeah, you definitely, yeah, you see a lot of things really, it's pretty easy to avoid it. You know, I mean, unless you scroll through Instagram, as soon as you start seeing sponsored posts, you just put the phone down is really all you should yeah. do. Um, Cause you're just going to see a lot of that stuff. And, and, you know, as I follow more landscape people, you're going, I'm going to see a different probably set of images than you would. So you probably see those portrait cliches and I see all the landscape ones day in and day out. Well, I mean, it's interesting you talk about people kind of irresponsibly influencing like the tent on the side of the mountain type thing, because I've noticed that uh, Iceland has uh, seen a real issue with it becoming a bit of a hipster hotspot for landscape photographers. I believe they're not really landscape photographers. They're usually just content creators, which is usually a good Influencers, sign. Influencers, yeah. Yeah, that they're a dickhead, essentially. Um, and <laughs> they've had a real problem with people flying drones when they shouldn't, people walking on to landscapes that they shouldn't, damaging stuff that they shouldn't just to get a photo. In fact, even where I live in this tiny little part of Hampshire in England, there's um, a poppy field that's had to be closed, even with the pandemic, 
because the sheer number of people going there, yeah, just trampling it to get a selfie. Is is that like kind of preservation of nature and that that compassion towards the places that you're photographing um, something you think is being lost on the next generation? I, I, it seems like it is. And I, I don't know because I always like to have this idea that the percentage of people being jerks has remained constant. So I don't like to, you know, it, it only takes 5% of people being jerks to really ruin a place. So mm. I hope that we still have 95% of people that care about things. I don't really know the numbers, but uh, it's tough because you do see what you, it doesn't, only problem is, you know, it takes 5% of people, but that's now a hundred thousand people going to this one poppy field and trampling it or doing whatever and just destroying it or flying drones all over. And you you rapidly see places getting closed down because of it. You see all sorts of, there'll be gates closing parts in the forest land and such and areas that just can't handle the human traffic anymore. Yeah. So it's a real, it's a real shame to see it. And I think, um, I don't know about you, but I, I do see a lot of brands that do outdoor clothing or the tent stuff or even some of the car manufacturers do a really bad job of of influencing that behavior in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think they're trying to get better. I think they realize that, you know, showing their tent in a legal campsite is not great on their brand. I'd like to think that you don't always. <laughs> I've seen people call out certain brands for stuff like that. And sometimes they try to, you know, take action to not let their influencers do that stuff or no longer use those photographers. One more thing I want to ask you about, and then I promise we'll head towards positive pastures here. But um, <laughs> there's something that I found to be quite a funny cliche, and I don't know if I'm just not getting it, but it's the like big landscape vista shot, and then you have someone stand in front. Small person, yeah. <laughs> not always small person, but they're almost like stood on the ledge looking out onto the vista. And it's, right, yeah, I, it yeah. Almost, yeah, it's like a hero shot, but it's always kind of weird because to me it feels more of a portrait shot than it does a landscape shot because the person's so bloody distracting. Right. And it's always the back of someone. It's never their front. Um, it's always, it's just that whole, I mean, that's just a trend. I mean, people are chasing likes. I don't know if that one's slowed down yet because at this point everyone's doing it. So you just see that little person wearing a red jacket and this big Vista, you know, and you see the back of the person. It's just, that was definitely something that the, I think people are trying to get sponsored. They're trying to get likes. That was a brand's loved that one for a while. I think it's fading, but yeah, I've never quite understood that one. All right, let's let's go towards positive stuff. I'm assuming that based on the fact that you you do this hiking and you're an outdoorsy person, that you must be in good shape, right? Somewhat, sure. I mean, I'm not coming on to you. I'm just asking in general. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can, I can move myself around. So I, I hike a lot and bike a lot to get around. So why on earth would you then make the decision? And obviously, I'm aware that this is an ironic question, but to have all of this extra gear on you when cameras are becoming so infinitely powerful and small, uh, this decision to have these large format cameras on, on you. Sometimes it's just fun to make life a little harder for yourself. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> there really is that challenge in it. You know, it was silly when I first got into it. And when I was at the point when I was going to get a large format camera, it was really because I was tired of, you know, I tried making prints from 35 and in the landscape sense of things, it just didn't hold through. You know, you make anything even up to 16 by 20, you're like, that's not very impressive. So it was right. going to go bigger. And at that point, you know, I was thinking, do I get like some kind of more modern digital camera? Cause you can certainly print, you know, pretty well with the nice. And this was like probably around 2007 or eight or something. So, and the other option was just make the film bigger. And I jumped right to four by five. I knew it was not the easy or reasonable decision. It was not, it was so many weird, you know, it's not the normal choice of things at all. So 
especially kind of when that was when film was at rock bottom, no one was getting into film. It was really quite dead. And I got some, you know, a used crown graphic camera for $200 with a lens and a bunch of film holders and got started using that. And quickly was like, yep, these big sheets of film are amazing. So from there it was, how do I hike with this? How do I bring it with me everywhere? And it's just, now it's like this way of life. It's just always there anytime I'm taking a photo trip. So having, you know, 40 pounds on my back is just, what I'm used to at this point. Uh, though when backpacking, I really trim it down. I only bring two lenses. I really limit the film holders. I bring extra boxes of film so I can load it. And I've really gotten the entire kit, including a tripod down to about 20 pounds for the camera stuff, a little under about 15 to 20 pounds. And then the rest of it, I can, you know, as the backpacking, the gear, the tent, and the sleeping bag and all that still ends up being a 45 pound bag once I have food and everything for several days. But it's just kind of become a way of life. Well, it's interesting you bring up like 35 not cutting it because coming from a digital world, I started off digitally. I've only actually dug into film since the, the pandemic started for myself and have taught myself to develop black and white and, and done a pretty poor job of everything I've shot so far, but I'm certainly trying. Um, it's very strange to come from a digital world where everyone's trying to get to 35 millimeter to that full frame look. <laughs> and then you come to right. film and everyone's like, 35 millimeter is shit. You need to get, you need to go up from there. <laughs> it's it a very bigger. strange jump. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, in terms of like comparing the formats, obviously you lose convenience as you get bigger with with the, the film size, but what is it that 35 mil doesn't do for you that four by five does? You know, generally the, it was just the sharpness. I wanted to make big prints. And I think if you have more, if your images are more about the action or portraits, you can make pretty large prints from a 35 millimeter. I think, you know, I think Galen Rowell was all 35 millimeter and you quite large prints from that, but it's more of these action mountaineering shots. It's a little different, but when you're just going for this extreme pristine beauty, it kind of falls apart when you make a big printer. You know, the detail really goes a long way in the bigger film format. And what's the learning curve like when you go up to four by five? Because if I'm honest, and I don't tend to swear too much on this podcast, but it's fucking terrifying to think about. <laughs> you know, it's really just a bigger camera, actually, in some ways. And that's where the simplicity of it, in some ways, became addictive. And now I couldn't, I occasionally use medium format. And I'm kind of like, you know, what is this thing? You know, why is there... Why is it too complicated? What's with the batteries and all that? So <laughs> I actually really end up liking the simplicity. There is, I think most people, it's overwhelming. That's why I have a blog where I try to give some resources on, you know, getting started with a four by five, but you don't even know it. The, the equipment doesn't make any sense. You get it and the image is upside down and you're just like, I don't understand. The lenses don't even look the same. The shutters in the lenses, all sorts of things are just confusing about it because it's a whole world apart. But in all reality, it's because we've gotten so used to the more technical, techno, you know, modern cameras that these older cameras are, they're so basic, but they seem foreign anymore. So the learning curve, you end up seeing the upside down image to me looked right side up within a few months of regular using. It doesn't really look upside down to me at all. And you just get used to it. You know, you have a separate meter, light meter, and you have to do all that yourself. But it's really quite a simple device. It's just simple. It's pleasant to use. I mean, I, I've recently picked up a Bronica ETRS for, for portrait shots, and it only had a waist level viewfinder. And I attempted to shoot it 
portrait orientation with the way solar viewfinder and i confused myself well i confused (laughs) myself so much i think i almost gave myself a stroke so listening to the idea (laughs) that you're seeing stuff upside down as completely normal is is mind-blowing to me (laughs) but are you still seeing i mean one thing i'm curious with and i'm sorry to ask such an amateurish question but people say that the jump between 35 to medium format the the film behaves very differently you know the grain's very different the colors are very different is it the same thing when you go from medium format up to large format that you're seeing like like much more obviously you're talking about clearer detail but is is the grain structure much more pleasant is it are the colors behaving a lot better Hmm. I would actually, I've always kind of made the argument that it's, you know, Velvia 50 is the same on all three, you know, formats. It wouldn't really matter what you're, so the grain is the same. It's just that you have so much more image out of it. You have, so you Mm. know, the grain takes up smaller parts of the scene. So you end up with all this detail and the colors behave different. It's just that better tonality, the smoothness of colors in this big sheet of film, you know? So when you have this gradient of you know, changing hues across the sky. There's just so much more subtleties that come out in a big print where it's not lost in this enlarged grain as you blow up a 35 millimeter shot. So I would say there's really not so much of a difference between them. It's just bigger in all reality. So bigger, sharper, clearer. And I'm not something of a, of a gear hound and I tend to get told off for not talking too much about gear on the podcast. I actually don't think for the most part, it's particularly important to the process, but I'd agree with that. When it comes to landscape, I, I, I'm completely clueless when it comes to landscapes. Obviously, I'm assuming for the majority of people, a polarizer, some kind of like 0.9 soft grad would be the obvious choices to have with them. Is there any like filters that are particular to large format or do you have a, a decent filter set up for your large format? Or I'm now wondering, do you even bring filters for large format? Yeah, I use a filter on most images, anything where there's going to be, especially around sunset or twilight, the sky is always one or two stops brighter for me. I actually really don't use those 0.9 grads. It's just too strong for me and too obvious. So I usually use a one or two stop when I'm going just to kind of subtly control that sky. Just gently, you won't notice it. I never use the hard filter. It's just a soft one. There is one film type, Provia, where I use a warming filter because that film's always just too blue just a mild warming filter. And then polarizers for me used to be when I started in photography, that thing was on the lens for every shot. It's rare now. I just don't think it's that over contrast look that everyone wants in their landscapes. And I don't really use polarizers very often at all, unless I'm specifically trying to take care of some glare at like a waterfall or something. And then to move into uh, the, the the next part of film photography in the process, the part that I have a confession to make last week, I punched a scanner. I got so fed <laughs> up with it misfiring and the problems I was getting. And I do have the patience and temper of a sort of uh, mid 18th century European dictator. So um, I lost my, Very I lost my proverbial man. shit. And oh, honestly, I've got no time for anything. And this was just pushing its luck. And I did end up putting my hand through a scanner. So um, I will admit the scanning process is something that I can't get my head around. It's something that you seem to be absolutely phenomenal with. Can you just talk a little bit about the art of scanning and maybe where it's getting lost on people like me? Right. Scanning is probably, I think a lot of people think they're going to dive into film because they don't have to edit their shots anymore. And it's just going to look beautiful the way it is. And then, especially if they shot negatives, they get these you know, orange pieces of film back and they try to scan it and the scanner just completely destroys them and they're frustrating and they're slow. They're really, you know, the software is all 20 years old and they're painful to use. They really are. You you, you need to breathe and slow down and become, you have to, to learn to love your scanner because they actually are amazing machines, even kind of lousy scanners, your little dedicated film scanners that people buy use, whatever the 
plus techs or the Nikons and stuff. They're actually great scanners. And even the Epson flatbeds can be talked into making a pretty good photo. You just have to learn to love them and learn to work with them. <laughs> they're they're the biggest problem is they're doing is those horrible software programs are expecting some someone who knows has no idea about technology, just put a piece of film in there and then I think my Epson has a print button on it. So you can like it's like designed to do oh it's an easy <laughs> scan button. So it's the button where you would just press it and it would just scan it with no adjustment. It would just do the auto thing and you would end up with a bunch of junk is what you would have. You just have to find your way to turn off all of those horrible auto settings because they want to turn sunsets into daytime light. They want to turn everything into what doesn't make sense at all. And you just have to really get down. You're, you're, most people are going to end up spending a little more time editing when it comes to film in all reality, at least until they get their workflow figured out. You can end up realizing that this is kind of your quick curves layer that gets your you know, film shots looking the way you want them to. You can get it dialed down. But at first, you're going to be learning. That's probably the biggest learning curve is scanning and the most frustrating one. Yeah, my, my left hand would agree. Um... <laughs> Did it hurt you or the scanner more? Oh no, it definitely hurt my wallet more. <laughs> I came away unscathed. The, the scanner is, well, we're going to make it part of a YouTube video where I'm going to scare some people. But <laughs> in, t- in terms of like, that was the low end of scanning you're talking about. Obviously I'm assuming shooting large format that you're not, you're not messing around. So what's your, your scanner of choice? What's your process? Yeah, right. When I first got a scanner, because there's not many scanners that can take four by five film until you get pretty high end. So as I didn't have a ton of money when I was starting, I got one of those Epson flatbeds, uh, the V700 and now is the V800, whatever, but it's pretty much the same scanner. And it's just a, it's really a scanner that's meant to hold an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, but also does a pretty good job at scanning film transparencies as well. So that was the starting that got me by for a long time. And they actually, you know, fairly high resolution. It works pretty well. And it's a quick device to operate. About four years ago, though, I dove into drum scanning, which is just so I have this German Heidelberg Tango scanner uh, that I bought off eBay and it weighs 550 pounds. It stands almost as tall as me. <laughs> Jesus. The four of us to get it up my staircase into the house. And, um, it's an amazing thing though, you know, instead of having uh, a CCD or it actually scans through, you know, PMT tubes, essentially it scans and, um, it turns it to a digital signal at the very end. So it's more of an analog process. They don't make very many drum scanners. I don't, I don't think any are manufactured anymore. Mine was made in 2001 or so. And, uh, there's still a lot of them out there. They're amazing machines. I have to have a power Mac G4 to run it. So it's talking about learning curve. You have to wet mount the film. You put it on this drum and the drum spins for many hours. You know, I can fit six sheets of four by five film on a drum. And that's usually about four or five hours or so to scan that. So it's a slow process, but the results are amazing. I get a file that's about 1.7 gigs for each image. So a lot of detail in them. It was the drum scanning video, I believe, that you've put up that was actually the first one that I found of you. And then that sent me down the rabbit hole. (laughs) it's a process that looks so physical compared to like slamming it in a tray and just dropping the lid down. Yes. How did you, how did you learn the the process though? Because obviously if there's not many being or any being manufactured, then it's, it's a kind of a, 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 an art that's disappearing. Who did you learn from to, to get so good at it? So one of the reasons I went with the tango was because there's actually two guys, well, really one guy and his employee that work on them in the entire world. And uh, he had an employee that was working for him in the States who came out and helped me set up the scanner. I kind of got it going myself, but he made it sing a little better. I mean, the thing had been, it was owned by Playboy before me and had been sitting in storage since about 2003. So it was sitting wow. for 
about about 15, almost 15 years or so when I got it. And so it needed greased up, lubed, all the, you know, a lot of uh, work done on it. And then he, we were waiting on a part to arrive. He helped me set up the drum and learn how to get that. Also, there was a few videos on it, not very good ones. Uh, this guy had some good experience. And then from there, you kind of dial in your own method. Like you said, it's a physical process. I have to work with this tape and really get all the fluid bubbles squeezed out and everything. It's just such a, it's, it's pretty fun actually. And you get it down pretty quickly. Well, you just sound like a, an impossibly positive and patient person. And that tells me <laughs> that there's something that I probably could never do. Um, if we could, if we could just swing quickly into kind of subjects that you photograph, one thing I noticed with your website and something I, I find really fascinating, I'm always quite intimidated by big industrial structures that are in the middle of nowhere. And we don't have a lot of that in the UK. I've seen it in America. And obviously with you, I believe, obviously, I don't know if you are based in Colorado anymore, but being in Colorado for some period of your life, you've seen the oil fields, I'm assuming. And oil seems to be mm-hmm. a big part of, of what you do. What is, what is it about the oil drilling, the oil industry, those photographs um, for you that makes those scenes so worthy of being photographed? So that series has kind of slowed down for me and I've been kind of doing different stuff on the prairie, but that one started, that was actually local to me, all of that stuff. What happened is I live in Greeley, Colorado, which is on, um, I'm about an hour from the mountains and I'm an hour from the open prairie. So I'm kind of in the, the narrow urban corridor of Colorado. And what I was noticing, particularly in the area I live in, the county is Weld County, and we had a lot of oil and gas development. It was getting to this point where anywhere I stood, if I looked in any direction, there was some sort of fracking equipment. There was, you know, drilling rigs or pumps or wells or something everywhere. And it became, I started to realize that was what there was to photograph. It started just, I had to capture it. The industry was growing so quickly. So the images are kind of they're very obvious. They're central heavy. There's just this thing, you know, an industrial pump of sorts or some sort of equipment or rig in the middle of the photo and kind of softer light. I was working with most of the time. I was kind of doing a little more daytime light than I used to do than I do now. You know, I was doing more uh, instead of sunrise and sunset it was more of these midday or not midday, but golden hour light, but soft with, I was using Portra. So the colors were muted And I was just kind of working with what I had around me. It became a documentation to show how the industry was rapidly growing around. And is it something where, I'm assuming if you're local to it, you see it all the time. It's not going to draw a tremendous amount of local interest. But for people further afield, idiots like me in a country that doesn't even know what that kind of stuff looks like, it's going to be fascinating. And you kind of have to trust the process that those images are going to be interesting to people that are a bit further afield. Yeah, that's pretty true because someone in my area would be like, what are you doing photographing that? That makes no sense. We see them every every day, you know, but it is, it was so interesting to see these pumps, you know, you just see one of these pump jacks and then around it is my, I mean, that's our kind of how we get to cheat with photography. You never know what's behind me in the image, but in the image, it looks like there was just this one object and then it could be hundreds and hundreds of miles of absolutely nothing around it. You know, it just looks kind of bizarre to see this thing out there. And it's all under these great plain skies. There's always good skies in the images. And it's just, it's kind of a surreal, it's an industrial thing. Where's the rest of it? You know, why is this thing all alone out here? And that was part of it. So I think that kind of made it appealing to anyone to see it. It just kind of spoke in its own way. And one thing you mentioned earlier is that film photography went through a bit of a, a doldrum where people had completely abandoned it. And I think we've seen in the last three or four years, it's especially the last two, it seems to have really picked up quite a substantial amount of momentum when it comes to Instagram, YouTube, and so on. Idiots like me picking it up. So it's obviously doing something. 
In terms of this influx of new film photographers, one thing I'm noticing is that there are an awful lot of people, and I think this is just a common trait in general with YouTube generation sort of anything, people that have picked something up maybe a year ago, maybe six months ago, maybe two years ago, but have nowhere near put their 10,000 hours in to understand the thing that they're talking about, then try and position themselves in, in a place to be like an authority on how to use it, what it can be used for, how, how it can be used and so on. Do you ever worry about the sort of the trajectory of film photography getting skewed by people that don't really know what they're talking about dishing out advice? These overnight experts, essentially, that, you know, mm. suddenly. Yeah, I don't think I'm too worried about that. People are I think people can see through that. I hope I've noticed there is this trend in people who they do something for two weeks and they consider themselves a master. And, you know, it's not very true. I, I don't consider myself a master yet. And I've been shooting four by five for almost 15 years, 14 years or so. And there's still always new techniques to try and more to do. So I do like to share what I know. So I guess I could have been one of the, I've been sharing my information for quite a while now. So there is some of that, I guess maybe I was just one of those guys who became an overnight expert, but I like to think I gave it more time. And I don't think it'll skew things too much. So people are always looking for good, genuine information from someone with some experience. Yeah, I think like maybe in the in the digital sense, photography suffered quite badly with people that were very B-roll heavy with their YouTube videos. So it was it was a lot mm -hmm. of icing and not a lot of cake. <laughs> yeah, it looks real pretty. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's got all the substance of of a uh, 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 you know a forty year old actress in California. <laughs> in terms of your blog, I mean, you talked about you putting information out there. I have to say, I absolutely love your blog on your website. Um, Appreciate it. Well, the information you're putting out is just not not done in the way anywhere else that I've seen in the sense that it feels like you really do try and cover the full subject, not give out a small piece of information and then, uh, you know, get frustrated with the, the stream of questions that probably fly at you. It seems to be incredibly comprehensive. <laughs> right. Do you have like quite a desire to share information on what you're doing? And if so, why? Right. I think you'll see a lot of people that are very secretive with your information because it's as if it's there, you know, my only knowledge and no one else can know the stuff. So they share those irritating tidbits that just make people wonder more. Uh, you'll notice I don't write that many posts a year, but they're detailed. They do take a while to write. And I really think through them and they're, so I am trying to share what I know, really. I think that the more people know together, the more collectively good we all get. So I don't really see this reason to, sh to hide the information. And I really truly do enjoy people coming to me as a resource and, enjoying what I have on the blog because there is a lot of information on there and I just want people to be better and, and enjoy it, to have fun with photography, especially film. Well, it's weird because I studied history of medicine at school and I always think about the people that like to kind of hold back information to themselves. Mm -hmm. And I always think about the history of medicine and if people had done that within you know the realm of medicine, how far, even further right. behind we'd be at this point, just because people don't want to give up their secrets. It seems kind of daft because I had Ryan Brenizer, who's a phenomenal wedding photographer on episode 99. And um, I've heard him say several times, you know, if you're relying on like a secret technique and you're the one that's holding it back, then when someone else figures it out, you're just, you're, you know- You've got nothing left, right? You've had your crutch pulled out from under you, yeah. Yeah. And I would say in all reality, I think a lot of us, especially in the younger age, we get into this and think we've learned some secrets, but we're probably just doing something that people have been doing for a hundred years in terms of photography. I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's definitely new things going on, but it's not like 
I mean, shooting film, I'm just kind of relearning some of the stuff from the masters back in the day. So kind of learning in my own way. I think what I have is I like to have a different way of telling it to people that maybe works to a newer crowd that are not familiar with film. And I think that might be some of the difference. I like to share it and help people grow. But like you said, there's no point. I don't think there's that many secrets being held on to. You might think you have this one and only thing, but someone else is going to figure out how to, you know, build the bomb, if you will, as if someone's going to beat you to it eventually. Mm. Yeah. Mutual destruction situation. It's, it's funny. I always, I always, I have a profound, not, I suppose fear is not the right word, but a, a, a sort of terrified respect for people that do something that I wish I could do Like you know, previous masters, someone like Peter Lindbergh, his, his photography absolutely terrifies me because of how amazing it is. And I do feel like a lot of people coming through don't have that healthy fear of amazing work. They, like you said, they think that they've discovered something new and really they're just kind of retreading incredibly worn ground. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of worn ground in photography for sure. So sometimes just have fun with the ride, but don't, don't make it, it gets a little pretentious when you think you're holding on to these secrets or things that have never been done before, when there really is a lot of great work in photography from decades ago. I mean, you mentioned earlier about uh, the scanning process being more of a part of film photography than people realize when they get into it. Beyond the scanning process, one thing that I think is very apt when it comes to talking with you is, is the way that that work is then presented digitally and not in the sense of, you know, what you do in editing and how you go about your scanning, but just in the way that you present that work to the world. And one thing I've noticed with yourself is you do kind of like, here's the whole image. And then you do like a swipe through on Instagram so people can see the breakdown of like a panoramic almost, uh, like a swipe through. Is that something that's quite difficult? Because obviously I don't think digital ever really does justice to what you're getting with those large negatives. I don't know for sure, but I I have a strong opinion that that might be the case. Is it ever frustrating for yourself that you, you have these amazing negatives of this incredible scene and digitally it just never quite, it doesn't quite live up to it? They're being shown at, you know, 1080 pixels. Yes. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't ever, it doesn't really do much for four by five film. So I do think that that's where I, when I do these art shows, they, the prints is really what it all comes down to. You see a 40 by 50 inch print and it makes sense online. Uh, there's definitely a different tonality you can see in sheet film, but you're not getting the full feel of standing in a life-size print. You're just not there. So there is, it's not too frustrating. I understand that's just kind of the nature of the game. You're not going to see a big piece on Instagram. And that's why the panoramas are nice where I do the half sheet. Cause you know, for me, I don't need to stitch a bunch of photos for panorama. I just shoot a whole sheet of film and plan on using half of it. And it's still, I can easily make, you know, 30 by 90 print or larger from it. No problem. There's tons of detail in there, but the swipe throughs and in Instagram, you, you know, you can see a little better detail of it, but it's still, that's a social media platform. You're never going to really enjoy a four by five sheet of film that way. So in, in a sense, is the, the printing part of it really the the end product that you you most focus on and that you're most excited by is is the Instagram stuff and the stuff that you're putting on YouTube on your website and so on is that just part of sort of the culture that we're in it's not something that you would necessarily be too excited about yeah I'd say so I mean the Instagram was just kind of a, a necessary thing to get into at some point I was very social media averse actually for years um, people were saying you really need to get a Facebook page or an Instagram and I'm like oh, okay okay let's do that uh, but I've, I've never been much <laughs> of a social social media personality because it's uh, not always the best platform for some things uh, especially there's there's a good community of bung film people for sure too but it's not always the great 
greatest crowd to be around. And Instagram is one of the more positive social medias, so I can get behind that pretty well, actually. So you, you've seen a lot of like negative interaction then? Not too much on Instagram. It's really quite, I mean, generally people are just enjoy stuff, especially the film community. They really are quite supportive. Yeah, I've, I've found the film community to be mind-blowingly different from what I'm used to when it comes to just the portrait community in general. There's a, there's a couple of really weird things about portrait photographers. One is that they seem to sort of claim subjects. <laughs> they like piss up a model and then they assume that that's theirs and that the scent will scare off everyone else. You see quite a lot of that like in the smaller community. And then at large, everyone just seems to know how everyone else should have taken a photo. I'm assuming that's not as big of a deal with landscapes. I'd say that landscapes in general have some of that, but the film community, maybe not so much. I think there's just a little more of these people, especially because like you said, some people are learning to get into film right now. So there's kind of these really excited people and not a bunch of people that are thinking they're masters already, but a lot of people are just like, I want to know more. And I just am inspired by seeing these film photos. And I feel like I see more of that than people that are just, because I think um, I've heard it called comp stomping with landscapes is where you, you're the first person to find that composition. So you can, you know, you make your, like you said, I guess, piss on the model and claim it's yours at that point. Uh, it's kind of like doing that with the landscape. But people, there is some of that in the landscape community. However, I don't think so much with the film community as a whole. There's a lot of different styles in the film community. It's funny, you know, in the States, I don't really know how many large format guys there are, but there's, there is a community of us. And it's kind of funny how we bump into each other. I mean, I'll be driving around the West. I just, you know, bumped into a large format photographer from Arizona last week while I was shooting in Southwest Colorado. And it's just, you know, always can have a good conversation and just meet people in person. It's quite interesting. And one thing I didn't think about, about landscape photographers, landscape photography in, in general, um, is, is the potential for really bizarre things to cause issues with your working practice, or you might have something planned for months and then nature has another idea. Obviously, weather in the short <laughs> yeah. term is an obvious thing, but, uh, you mentioned before this about a trip that you had and the, the joy of wildfires. Right. Yeah. I mean, for example, all of this fall in Colorado, I mean, the entire summer has been a smoke problem for sure. So, you know, granted, it's just hard to take photos. I'm glad that's the only results I've had from the fire so far, but it is, it's a challenge to work around and the big scenes are just tricky. And what I had in August, I went backpacking in Wyoming a few times in August. And, you know, one of the trips had great skies. The last day smoke rolled in, but we were just about out of there anyway. And then one of the other trips I had in there was just smoky almost the entire time. And you're just kind of not a whole lot you can do. You can shoot close-up scenes, but when you were in this mountain range and the whole goal was these big epic mountain scenes, it's it's tough. You know, you just put a lot of work into it and you're kind of smoked out. I mean, how does that frustration go for you? in the long term? Is it something where it kind of puts you off of future trips? Do you become more apprehensive? You know, what's, what's the long-term effect of that frustration? I'm pretty hard to frustrate for that stuff, actually. Luckily, I just love being out there. So you can take me, even though I carry, you know, 40 pounds of camera stuff around the entire time, I'm still happy to be there. Uh, so there's really no, no, nothing lost. I'm still in the mountains. I had a good time. To wrap up again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. What I always like to do is to kind of make you seem human to people that are going to be staggered by your work. So if I could ask you to do a little bit of self-evaluation here, because it's always interesting to see how people look at their own work and their own working practices. What do you think your biggest strength is as a photographer? You really are the HR guy, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, one of my biggest strengths is I think persistence. I really do get out there a lot and try to shoot as much as possible. I mean, a lot of landscape people do that as well. I, I really think a lot of persistence and patience. And then in terms of weaknesses, um, I think sometimes you get a little comfortable shooting the same things over and over. I've been kind of a break out of that with the newer Prairie series I've been working on, but I think that comfort with shooting the same sub- subjects really can be a problem. And, and overall, with where you are now with photography, and you, you think back to when you were given that that wonderful one megapixel terrible digital <laughs> camera, are yeah. you kind of where you expected to be with with your work as a photographer, given the timeline, or has there been any kind of massive deviations from where you thought you would be? I'm miles and miles ahead of where I thought I would be. I didn't really know what I was getting into at that point. I didn't know it would become my job. I never even considered that until probably eight years ago as a possibility or so. So it's really, I'm in a whole different life than I would have expected. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. Um, The entire point of the podcast is to shove as many people as possible in the direction of your work. So let everybody know where they can find you. All right. We can find me on Instagram at at alexburgphoto or my website is alexburgphoto.com. Very easy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.